At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. The podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits. That's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching, Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Today we have Ron Purser on. Ron is a professor of management at San Francisco State University. He's also an ordained teacher in the Korean Buddhist Taigo Order and has his own podcast called The Mindful Cranks. Ron, welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for uh, inviting me. It's, uh, it's our pleasure. And we've got you in the middle of a retreat. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, I had to sneak out <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> so I'm assuming, you know, just to state the obvious, that it's not a silent retreat. Uh, no, no, it's not a silent retreat. Yeah. Okay. I'm also having a look at your website and I did something else, which uh, I had a quick look at the Rate My Professors site, which popped Uh-oh. up. <laughs> well, you, I haven't looked at that in a long time. <laughs> you don't need to worry. I have to tell you that the, the vast majority of student ratings are either awesome or good. So I think you must be doing something right as a teacher. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. They, they do say that you give quite a lot of work out, though. So there it is. So um, we're going to be talking about two topics today, which come into relationship in a variety of ways, which are neoliberalism and Buddhism. One of the reasons I approached you about discussing this topic is because you've been doing some interesting writing with a friend of yours who is? Perhaps you're referring to Jack Petranker? Actually, I wasn't. I was referring to David Lloyd. Oh, David Lloyd. David Loy has been quite busy over the years in developing an interesting critique of our current economic situation from a Buddhist perspective, and it was interesting to see your own work on these two topics. Before we dive into that, I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your, your own relationship with practice, and you know, feel free to say as much as you want or as little as you'd like. One of the things that interests me in talking to long-term Buddhist practitioners or teachers is this idea of the edge and what it is that challenges us over, you know, the cycles of years and years of engaging meaningfully and deeply with Buddhist practice. So I would ask you two questions, and the second is optional. The first one is, um, what's your current relationship with Buddhist practice? And secondly, is there an interesting edge that you've come up to in your meditation practice or perhaps the relationship between your Buddhist practice and your other commitments, such as that of being a university professor. 
Okay. Uh, a common question is, are are you a Buddhist or when did you become a Buddhist, right? Those are questions that are raised quite frequently. Yeah. And it's such a complex question in a way, because if we take the words, I am a Buddhist, we could break that down and deconstruct basically the whole grammar, the whole meaning of that. Uh, certainly I've been uh, a student of Buddhist teachings, but my my main practice actually for the last 35, 40 years has been actually a secular practice, which may surprise some people. The author is a Tibetan Lama. Obviously, his traditional training influenced his thinking and his outlook and his language and everything. I actually sort of stumbled across uh, this teaching. It's called the Time, Space, and Knowledge Time, Space, and Knowledge, A New Vision of Reality. I had the book when I was a freshman in college, but it was sitting on my shelf for a couple of years. And at that time, I was an undergraduate at a state college in Illinois. And then when I transferred, I transferred to another state college in Northern California. And I picked up the book again, and then I saw that the institute, the Nyingma Institute, was in Berkeley. And so I made my way over there and uh, discovered this really unusual unconventional teaching. And that was, I think, in 1982 or so. So I, I've stuck with it over the years uh, in waves, you know, off and on, you know, and there's been many, many other books that are sequels to that book. So yeah, I would say my affiliation is more towards just trying to be a freest human being as possible. And I really don't want to limit that with language by pointing to some sort of identity. Mm-hmm. The other question was about the edge, right? Yeah. Um, I really like that word, the edge, because it, it's, you know, it had the connotation that there's you're on the edge of a border of some kind. You could fall off the edge or, you know, the cutting edge, all those kinds of associations. And I think to me that it's that the edge is always there, mm-hmm. uh, but we overlook it. So we're falling back on what we know. We're falling back. Uh, we're operating, the mind is operating based on its uh, familiarity with what it already knows. And so rather than seeing things fresh, we're seeing actually our, our mental models and our memories of what refer to the thing that we're looking at and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I, to be truthful, I don't really know how to answer that question, but it's a good question and I like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, another way of looking at it is, you know, what are the let's say the prominent challenges or resistance to this type of freedom you've alluded to that are playing out in your relationship with something like the practice of you know time space and knowledge it's it's there and if you had anything to say to that feel free i think one of the one of the family members of the edge is inquiry uh critical inquiry and so i think one of the things that attracted me to this particular teaching was that it was not a dogma that you were supposed to adopt right the whole spirit of it is really trying to question how things are set up. We have to first understand how we got caught and where we are. We have to see how did we get to where we are, what's really operating underneath our usual habitual patterns and so forth. So to me, it's, it's a continuous process, a continuous practice of questioning the boundaries of what you think you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and not settling for answers in a way, too. I've read that book, I have a copy of it, and I found it, as you say, to be very, very interesting and quite original 
and certainly more secular in its leaning. Um, one of the things I'm surprised about it is that it has been, I don't know if it's the right phrase to use here, but it hasn't been as successful as it might have mm-hmm. been. You know, if we think about the timing of it, I mean, it's not that that distant from the work of Chogyam Trungpa, who, you know, blew up and was huge in terms right. of, uh, you know, reach and impact and success. And it seems like Tarteng Tolku's been just sort of quietly working in the background, although that text seems to be a peak in a, in a way of his application of Buddhist thought or his own creative process to a more secular approach to thinking about, you know, what these practices are and what Buddhism might look like if it were made secular. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. Yeah, when Tarteng Tolku first came to the United States in 1968, uh, he began t- teaching Westerners, but he was teaching traditional Tibetan Nyingma Buddhism. And he, he, he found it uh, that he was rubbing up against some really fundamental cultural uh, impediments of, of how Westerners think and, and their ways of knowing. And that's what really it triggered him to, once he became a little more familiar after being here 10 years or so, uh, he was very inspired to try to write uh, something that would resonate with more Western notions of reality. So it has that sort of quasi-physics kind of feel to it because you're talking about time and talk about space and uh, knowledge is something different. Um, but you're absolutely right that uh, in 1979, uh, Tarthang Tuku made a decision that he was going to stop teaching publicly and devote most of all of his energy to the preservation of Tibetan text Numerous other uh, projects like that. So he went up to Odeon, which is the country retreat center, and he's been there ever since, ever since 1979. So because he hasn't been in the public, like like you said, with Chungyam Trungpa, uh, he hasn't been in the, on the circuit. This is a book I think that 100, 200 years from now will be discovered, hmm. unfortunately. But I, I feel it's one of my uh, uh, one of my goals is to try to work with this material and uh, translate it to make it more accessible because, as you know, that first book was many people find it uh, impenetrable or difficult. Well, I think it's quite demanding of the type of relationship it it kind of requires in order to reveal itself. But uh, I actually consider it to be very lucid, uh, certainly one of the more accessible attempts at secularizing Buddhist thought and practice. And your your pronunciation of his name is slightly different from mine. You're saying Tar Thang Tolku, is that correct? Yeah, I've heard it pronounced different ways. I don't know what the correct pronunciation is, actually. Okay, I'll just carry on as I am then. (laughs) (laughs) But the the, the book is Time, Space and Knowledge, right? Because he also wrote some follow-up texts to it as well. Yeah, that was the first book. It came out in 1977. Uh, Dharma Publishing is also the publishing house that he founded as well. So, and yeah, and it wasn't until around 1990, or right around that time, that then a, a sequence of uh, follow-up books started to appear. And lately, now, he's, I think he's 80, 81 years old now, yeah. uh, but in the last four years, he has been pumping out book after book after book. It's just tremendous burst of creativity and uh, prolific output. Yeah. Yeah. Quite I had no amazing. idea you were still at it. Yeah. yeah. Well, great. That's something for our listeners to explore. Now, we're coming to this podcast uh, interview and conversation after uh, another conversation which you won't know that I've just had with Glenn Wallace and you two are uh, familiar with each other if I'm not mistaken yeah yeah and we actually touched on the topic of neoliberalism briefly but really this is you know the sort of core of the topic that I wanted to talk about with you 
it follows on, like I said, from a number of articles. And, and one of the more recent ones is with the chap you mentioned beforehand, which is Jack Petranker. And you wrote mm-hmm. a text for Tikkun, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's called Mindfulness and Its Limitations in a Neoliberal Society. If you don't mind, I mean, it would, don't want us to have too much hard work on our hands here. But um, sometimes I'll be talking about Buddhism and sometimes I'll be talking about mindfulness. If you, if you feel a need to make a stronger distinction between the two, please do so. I would start heading off in that direction now, if you're happy to. And the first mm-hmm. question I would ask about it really is, you know, what's your working definition of neoliberalism? Well, first, let me... Uh qualify that I'm not a political scientist or a cultural studies scholar, so I've been uh, trying to get up to speed on neoliberalism over the last year or two. I think if you want to look at it, yes, it started out as sort of an economic policy and philosophy, uh, but it's really a cultural project as well. And it's, it's a difficult subject. There's a lot going on when you use the word neoliberalism. Basically, what we're getting to is uh, almost a pernicious, a pernicious ideology that is very difficult to see, and it it really has an effect on our thinking and our subjectivity. One way of thinking about neoliberalism is uh, the, uh, the the scholar Henry Giroux, and he talks about neoliberalism as a disimagination machine. Wow, that's a nice phrase. I love that phrase. Yeah. It is. And basically what he's alluding to is that the way we know our education, our knowledge um, is sort of directed away from critical modes of knowing and that we train ourselves uh, through the cultural communique of neoliberalism. It is it is sending messages to us in terms of how we can survive in, a, in an economy, a capitalist neoliberal economy, where the, the fundamental unit is the individual. The fundamental unit is the individual who has to compete in order to be of value in the marketplace. So in a way, it's, it's uh, taking uh, the, the principles of the market uh, to such an extreme that we, we've, we've kind of arrived at a, an enterprise culture, right? And this is not conspiratorial either. I mean, it's not some plutocrat sitting somewhere and pulling levers, but so it's it's not done through brute force. It's not done through, let's say, other forms of power that were more predominant under a monarchy or something like that. But it's it's more of a, an apparatus. I like to use Foucault's term that we're living in a regime of truth, and that regime of truth has limit effects on our behavior, on our thinking, on our awareness. And it, it shapes our bodies, it shapes our behavior, it shapes our conduct, and it shapes the way we interpret ourselves in relation to others. I think it also has an effect on our feelings, our sensibilities. So that's kind of a general contour. I, I could get, I'd like to get deeper into more of the details of it. But it's basically uh, having it's having a devastating effect, I believe, on our bodies, our affects, and our relationships. Because it's basically saying, look, you, in order in order to survive, you have to live in competition. So all of this, you could say, rise of depression. You see a lot of reports on how uh, mental illnesses on the rise, anxiety, depression. I mean, that's an outgrowth of of, of just having to fend for yourself. And it, it's it's really 
neoliberalism is not not just false consciousness, but I think it's it's really hailing us to a specific world of meaning. Mm-hmm. One of the the code words or the code phrases is that we, we're free to choose. We're free to choose. We we have to make it on our own. If we don't, then it must be a failure, a personal failure. So the uh, the emphasis on personal responsibility, the emphasis on privatization, both privatization of our uh, safety net institutions, but also privatization in terms of turning inward. And uh, so this ideology of free choice becomes kind of naturalized. In a way, there are sort of like fantasies of unfettered agency, fantasies of control over all our thoughts. And I think that's where mindfulness comes in. I'm not so sure I want to jump there yet, but... Yeah, let's, let's give a bit more space to this, yeah. It's uh, tempting because, you know, you're, you're using some of the phrases which just naturally make me at least want to jump on the fact that, you know, mindfulness and other forms of spirituality fit so well into the view you're describing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, another way of framing it is that it's reformulating our sense of personhood. Some people right. like to use the word subjectivity. Yeah, yeah. So it has an effect on our, our identity. It has an effect on our personhood. It's, it's sort of hyper-ideological in the sense that, as you said, it's, it's not been so out in the open, but this is not necessarily the result of some intentional conspiracy. It's just, it's just been there doing its thing. And I think because it's been partially hidden, it's been more effective in its role in seeping into the many layers of social relationships that we have and sort of infecting them with this idea that, you know, we shouldn't just be competitive, but we should be uh, hyper-concerned with our own self-preservation and growth. I keep, I keep thinking, as you were talking, then I was thinking about the fact that neoliberalism is, is, of course, a form of capitalism. And it seems to me that it's tied to this idea of infinite growth, as if, as if you know, if I could just be autonomous enough and free enough and choose well enough, then I might actually be able to, you know, continuously grow myself into an ever better model of me, if that makes sense. Uh, absolutely, yeah. In fact, you know, the, the neoliberal, the ideal neoliberal subjects is always constantly seeing how it, it can invest in itself. Yeah. It, it sees itself as kind of a bundle of assets, which it has to uh, maintain, upgrade. Wow. The working phrase in literature is we become entrepreneurs of ourselves. Right. And so the human capital discourse, you know, uh, is always, you know, we're always seeking to grow and develop our capacities to increase our human, our, our value in the marketplace. So in this sense, it, there's a blurring of everyday life. Like you say, it's it's invisible. And so there's kind of a blurring between everyday life and the market. Yeah, I think one way of putting that, as you as you pointed out, is we become a makeover nation, refashioning oneself. It holds a lot of power because it's really shifting the burden almost completely over to individuals. And that's where the care of the self comes up. Yeah. So individuals are stressed, they're depressed, they're frenzied, they're fearful, insecure. And so when methods such as mindfulness and other methods, they become very attractive. Yeah. As a way of optimizing. What's that new term people use? Self-optimization. Oh, wow. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this, the self-optimization is movement. That's something wow. I've been reading. Yeah, really. Okay, and there are a lot of apps for that. I imagine for quantifying. Yeah, how, yeah. How well you've developed yourself each day. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the quantification movement, all right. that kind of thing. It's a very perverse view of of personhood, isn't it? It's odd because it's credible, right? As an ideological force, right. it's very easy to get on board with it. 
One of the problems we're still having, perhaps, at the collective level is that we haven't quite yet constructed a meaningful opposition in terms of ideas to that kind of activity, because the natural opposite, right, of, well, transforming yourself and becoming a better person, who wouldn't want that? Exactly. And what's the opposite? Being lazy, self-indulgent, not caring? It's a great narrative. Yeah. And, And of course, that's not necessarily the alternative. I don't think there's enough of a, of a clear idea in terms of an, a sort of expressed possibility in the public sphere yet about what an alternative to this mode of being could be. Right, because the public sphere is something that doesn't exist in a neoliberal ideology. Okay, at least ideologically, but of course it ideologically, does. Ideologically, yeah. yeah, of course. But again, it goes back to the disimagination machine, that right, right. radical you know, thinking and, and maybe even an in, Utopian impulses are sort of drained away into into uh, uh, a hyper self enclosed individualism. It takes our disaffected consent that we have. We don't really like. Uh, I think most of us are not great fans of neoliberalism, but it, it's very very seductive, as you say. Mm. The other effect I think it has is that it maintains a powerful narrative of maintaining the status quo. Right. Yeah. And, and that's something that is, uh, I think, aided and abetted by some of them, by the mindfulness movement in many ways. Yeah, plus it's an attractive focal point for those who are feeling the pressure of these great global changes and shifts that we're, we're currently, you know, immersed in, right? I mean, the status yeah. quo is kind of like grabbing on to some sense of stability as well. And, you know, the self is like, the, I guess, the last the last point of the sinking ship before you go under, right? At least I've still got my sense of self. Right, right. It becomes a fortress of, of survival. Yeah. But there is a paradox, as you, as you just mentioned, that, you know, who wouldn't want to be benefited by practicing mindfulness to reduce stress and everything? So... There are all these therapeutic products such as mindfulness that help mitigate neoliberal uh, stresses of neoliberalism and uh, help us cope. But at the same time, I think that's inter- we're internalizing the neoliberal logic of privatization. And so it's kind of a perpetuating cycle in a way. It's a curious business. So, you know, there's different ways of looking at it. Uh, you know, another way of looking at it is um, the financialization of daily life, how we've uh, taken on... Uh, the privatization of risk, you know, now it's completely up to us. We, so in, a, in other words, uh, self-management, we have to be our own uh, CEOs, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. And then we're constantly auditing our, our lives, you know, there's, there's, there's an element of self-fragility, I think, in the construction of, of neoliberal self. There's, it's, it's, there's, there's something about a vulnerable, very kind of a fragile affect that I think comes with the territory, which again, you know, we have a situation where these technologies of the self, to use a Foucauldian word, the technologies of the self come in and, and offer a solution. Is that something you want to keep pursuing in, in this direction or? Well, yeah, yeah no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one of those topics that's so rich that, that there are some multiple directions that could be taken. But what comes to me actually is actually a more personal question. You know, as a professor of business management and somebody who's dedicated to an alternative view to neoliberalism, and this is not an attack in any way whatsoever, it's just curiosity. 
you know, how do you relate to that? And, and how do you bring this awareness into your teaching? Presumably to be a successful businessman, whether we like it or not. And, you know, apart from the context of our discussion today, requires you to play the neoliberal, neoliberal game exceedingly well. Yeah, well, that is something I str- have struggled with ever since I started uh, teaching in the university setting. Mm. I've always felt kind of a deep unease about capitalism. I've always felt at one time I was very much interested in uh, ecological sustainability and and environmental management. And when I started getting into that literature, I started becoming more and more disenfranchised and alienated from my own discipline. So I've been able to operate on the fringes of the discipline. There's something about the field of management that's, on the one hand, extremely boring, extremely uh, routine and formulaic. But on the other hand, there's, 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 there's something about that field that, that has a certain openness. So there have been pockets of uh, uh, innovation. You know, there's a great interest in the field of management and spirituality mm, and religion. Okay. I've always felt this emancipatory impulse and I've, I've tried to translate that more into my writing uh, recently. At one time, yes, I was teaching things like management and the ecology. And when I was teaching those sort of courses, yeah, then I could kind of really bring up these critical questions. But pragmatically right now, I'm teaching a very traditional introduction to management class. Mm. Very mainstream. It's my day job. Yeah. So uh, I have to make a living uh, as well. And Sure. I'm fortunate because I started teaching online about five or six years ago, hmm. and it's uh, an online course which has freed me up to do a lot more reading and research and writing. So I'm very uh, have a lot of gratitude about that. Yeah, yeah. It seems partially inevitable that in engaging in this like type of critique that it becomes something aside from the day job. You know that that that, that interesting tension between what we consider of, of most importance and then our commitments to the world, there's often an interesting tension there, right? That's right. That's right. Ripe ground for exploration in terms of practice, right? Yeah. Okay, well, that's fine. Let me go for another question that I prepared beforehand for this, this interview, and it relates perfectly to what we've been talking about so far. Let's lean slightly toward, more towards spirituality, Buddhism, mindfulness, and so forth. Um, to pick up on a couple of points you raised beforehand, um, certainly one implication of neoliberalism is that it becomes a, a bit like a god, right? It sort of dictates, you know, mm-hmm. what, what has value or what doesn't have value. And in this sort of purview of the individual, what has value is something that bolsters or strengthens the individual in their ability to market themselves. And a lot of contemporary Western spiritual practitioners and teachers in particular have been quite slow to pick up on this. I'm interested in particular as somebody who's quite happy to critique Buddhism and mindfulness and Western spirituality in how the sort of rules of the market sort of infiltrate the dialogue and the sorts of relationships that develop within Buddhist circles, spiritual circles, and in the teaching of mindfulness. Let's say one of the sort of implicit rules to neoliberalism is that, you know, we kind of have to become better capitalists, right? We, yeah. you know, have to turn ourselves into products as well. This is something that arises with this, you know, emergence of social media. We become products which we sell. We have to brand yeah, ourselves. Yeah. yeah. But it's also, I, the point you made before, it's like, you know, we, we, we sort of evaluate ourselves constantly, you know, in, 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 it's not just the projection outwards, right, which is the social media account oh, yeah. itself is. Mm-hmm. 
we also project those values inwards and we experience all of that psychological harm that you mentioned because, I mean, it's difficult in a world of projected perfection. We're never good enough, right? So people suffer from, as you said, depression, senses of insecurity and so <laughs> forth. Let's choose three words so I'm clear in my question. If we talk about efficiency, productivity and disposability, how, how would you say those sorts of market forces have been infiltrating spiritual practice, Buddhism, and mindfulness. Okay, efficiency, productivity, and disposability? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a big question. Um, well, first and foremost, it, it has infiltrated those discourses, uh, whether we recognize it or not. So I don't know exactly if I can respond directly to those three terms, but I'll do my best to try to give an overview. But, but as you said, uh, we have to constantly uh, invest in ourselves. So we, we, we see the self then as something that's in need of, of bolstering. So we see the self as a kind of a collection of assets and processes that we have to manage. And so one of the ways we manage it uh, are strategies of emotional regulation, I think. Uh, I like to call it self-management or as you say, there's this. Uh, it's, it turns inward uh, in terms of kind of a, a constant monitoring, a self-monitoring, a self-surveillance. Uh, in a way, the discourse, uh, in order to be productive, maybe this is a way of getting at productivity, is that we have to invest in positive emotions, emotions that seem troublesome. Those are labeled, right? Those are labeled as, as destructive emotions, like. Uh, Right. Anger and hopelessness and because they're they're not useful mm. to the regime. And so mindfulness, if we see it as kind of an instrumentalized an instrumentalized technology of the self, that becomes a way of governing one's own emotional uh, life. And so we're operating, you could say, in a, politi a political economy of affect nice, in a way. Yeah. yeah. And so positive emotions, you know, the whole positive psychology strand these are all related, you know, the wellness industry, the happiness industry, the mindfulness industry. They all share in common some of these. They all kind of share in common the tenets of neoliberal ideology, but also the way neo neoliberalism is shaping uh, our subjectivity. Everything becomes capital, emotional capital, yeah. right? It's interesting that maybe just as a side note <laughs> uh, that the Templeton Foundation, I don't know if you're familiar with it's them. It's a name that rings um, a bell. You'll have to remind me of what it is actually. Well, if you go to their website, uh, I can't remember exactly what the byline is, but if you read what their values are, they're like the epitome of neoliberal pro propagation machine. But they have tremendous amount of money and they funded Mind and Life Institute several million wow. dollars. Okay, that's interesting. Which is just not yeah. well known. But I, I think that there's this fantasy, you can maybe call it a neoliberal fantasy, right? A neoliberal fantasy that we have through spiritual practice, we can have this like uber sense of unfettered agency and self-control. And, and so we're constantly working on ourselves, which also brings up the point is are we, are we dissociated from ourselves because we're presuming a certain distance from our self as an actor. So we're in a way like splitting ourselves in some way. So in terms of efficiency, I think then we're looking for techniques which will, as I said earlier, to optimize our, our uh, human capital. 
that will get results. And that that's another angle is that everything is has an instrumental means and uh, paradigm. It makes me think of pragmatic dharma, which is a relatively recent development in American Buddhism. And it also brings up another point because uh, I wrote a text as an introduction to this interview. One, one point I made is that the problem with ideology is that it tends to produce its opposition. So if ideology functions, eventually it solidifies to the degree that a sufficient number of people begin to recognize its function as the sort of underlying or the underpinning structure of thought and behavior that's in the unconscious. That gives rise necessarily, in a sense, to its opposition. And one of the problems with opposition is that it tends to be reactive and therefore it places itself, yeah. you know, and it's, it, it becomes, in a sense, an, out, an outcome or a product of the ideology itself. One of the interesting grounds for exploration in terms of practice, whether it's exploring what it means to be an emotional person in contrast to what you've just described, or whether it's exploring the idea of, well, what would it mean to be a self that's wholly optimal? The counter to that phrase you used at the beginning about imagination is to avoid stepping into opposition. I was quite serious when I made that point about the fact that we don't seem to have matured a significant answer to what neoliberalism pushes in the positive, right? Which is, in a sense, a mm -hmm. release from lingering ideas of the collective self and collectivism and tribalism and so forth. It offers a solution to that, but that solution is very much dysfunctional. And it's what we're, we're discussing today. In a, in a way, you know, my curiosity is, is how do we produce an alternative sense of self which encompasses the positive aspects of neoliberalism, right? Which is the fact that actually, that actually the self does exist to a degree, but it needs to be understood in its complexity and its changing nature and so forth. If you don't develop a relatively robust psychological self or a sense of yourself as an individual you are, in a sense, an automatic victim to all these forces around you. It's mm -hmm. interesting that mindfulness, which we're going to start talking about a little bit more thoroughly in a moment, it's, you know, it, it seems to have incredibly positive intentions, right? Nobody can dispute the fact yes. that it, it's... Mm -hmm. the, even the intentions of people teaching mindfulness, they really have good intentions, but because they're not aware of the ideological basis for what they're doing, they're incapable of actually meeting what it is they believe they're selling or producing or providing to the people they're working with. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's, there's not much of a, a critical inquiry in, into... Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I say the same thing, is that I, I really don't question the value of mindfulness uh, and its uh, role of, of providing uh, benefits, whether in healthcare or therapy, whatever it may be. Uh, like you, I'm, I'm really more interested in the discursive habits uh, of mindfulness uh, teachers and particularly, you know, some of the discursive habits uh, that they use, which actually foreclose these kinds of questions. And so they presuppose a, a particular sort of uh, unconscious ideology, as you put it. And so those questions never get raised. They never get entertained. So there's a lot there we can unpack. There's definitely a lot there. <laughs> as always with these conversations. Let's do this. I'm going to ask you the next question because I think it's a good place for us to head towards and it will focus our discussion. Mindfulness is a term you're undoubtedly familiar with. I did a bit of research into it because you've used it, David Loy has used it, but it seems to be the case that it was actually coined as a term by Dr. Miles Neal back in 2010. That's correct, yeah. Okay, so you're confirming that, yeah. 
you and David wrote an article on this topic in 2013, if I'm not mistaken, and that kind of popularized the term to a significant degree, I would suggest. Can you define mindfulness and share the problems that such a term identifies and its particular flavor that, say, of interface with neoliberalism? I first came across the term, actually, I was watching uh, a video of uh, Willoughby Britain uh, making a presentation. Willoughby is at Brown University at the Buddhist Geeks. And, and, and I was watching this video and I heard the term and I said, wow, that's, that's an amazing term. So I, I, I think there's a couple of components or strands to McMindfulness. Obviously, uh, the decontextualization and re recontextualization process involves extracting uh, Buddhist teachings, obviously, from their Buddhist context, and then transplanting them into our Western culture. And in the process of doing that, we're recontextualizing these, these methods. And I think what uh, McMindfulness, uh, one of the blind spots of McMindfulness, is they don't appreciate to the extent to which context has an influence on the meaning and purpose of a practice. And I think one of the one of the issues that uh, has always bothered me is the universalizing claims of authenticity when it comes to uh, now we have the universal essence of the Dharma, for example. That rhetorical strategy of, of of resorting to this universal idea that we you know we found the original essence. Uh, it's a rhetorical move that I think mystifies and conceals. The ability to really look at how the context, the socio-historical political context has a tremendous influence on how we interpret these practices, how we make sense of them, how we put them to use and so forth. You know, in that particular article, uh, I was really aiming more towards corporate mindfulness programs. Having been involved in the consulting world many years ago, I did a lot of organization development consulting and training and so forth. I've seen many fads come and go in management. But when I saw on my radar, when I first saw the blip on my radar, I said, wow, what's going on here? Corporate mindfulness. Uh, and I started looking more closely at it. And when I did, it reminded me so much of the human relations movement. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, yes, with Elton Mayo and his Harvard colleagues. Because there was the famous, many experiments, but one of, one of the experiments was that uh, Mayo and his colleagues interviewed like 10,000 employees. And they, had, they, they trained these counselors to interview employees. And afterwards, the employees said that they felt a lot better about their work, but uh, nothing really changed structurally in the organization. So I saw some parallels with that. The whole idea that happy employees make more productive employees, that was all coming from Elton Mayo and the human relations movement. So when I saw sort of a, a rebirth uh, of that in the corporate mindfulness uh, world, uh, I started to become concerned. Then I, you know, probably, I, was, I wasn't really even that aware of the neoliberal uh, literature on neoliberalism back then. But uh, maybe on an intuitive level, I, I felt that, okay, McMindfulness is, is kind of a technique, an instrumental technique, which is used in such a way to help individuals cope and adapt to the toxic cultures and environments that they're working in. That's kind of what I first saw. 
And what, what troubled me was that that became sort of the end of the story. You know, this is mindfulness. This is how it works. This is how it's put to use. But I felt like, wait a minute, <laughs> we're just beginning to figure out how to translate the cultural translation of, of Buddhist uh, teachings and practices into Western culture. So I wanted to throw a wrench in the, in the system. I wanted to throw a wrench in it and say, well, you know, mindfulness is, you know, is a curriculum. The way it's it taught, it's, it's embedded in a, in a pedagogy. It's embedded in a curriculum, and that curriculum isn't set in stone. There are other ways that we can contextualize mindfulness in ways that instead of foregrounding the individual so much, we begin to uh, open up discourse, we open up spaces for looking at the connections between the individual and the collective, and to bring in critical awareness to the sources of suffering that are structural, systemic, uh, economic, those sorts of questions could be asked in these programs, but my suspicion is that they won't be because they'll be a threat to the centers of power. So most mindfulness teachers or mindfulness trainers especially, they're not going to bite the hand that no, feeds them. Yeah. And of course, then you have, well, you know, if we get a little mindfulness in there, it's going to transform. God, I hear that a lot. <laughs> It's the Trojan yeah, horse it's, argument. It's, it, it seems to me to be the counterpart of trickle-down economics. <laughs> I was just gonna, I was just going to go. say that. <laughs> yeah, because some you know corporate mindfulness teachers say, well, you know, it's good to work with the senior leadership, and once they get it, then it's going to yeah, trickle of down. Yeah, it is because that's worked so far. This is a bit more cynical, but it actually is true. I mean, I don't know if you remember the pseudo scientific experiment that was done by TM leaders and TM practitioners. Oh, I don't know uh, about that one. No, no, no. Well, many years ago in Washington, D.C., I think they assembled like six or 8,000 TM practitioners. They proposed that by practicing TM for a certain amount of days that the crime rate would go down <laughs> in D.C. I bet that was successful, right? <laughs> well, there's a great book. Uh, I can't remember the author, but the title's called Transcendental Deception. Right. Oh, nice name. Yeah. And it's, it's written by an insider who is pretty high up in that organization. It's an expose uh, on, on the institution, on the organization, but also on how they tried to marshal uh, science as a way to cloak what mm -hmm. they were doing. But yeah, it was a, this article was published and it was completely trashed by many academics uh, in different areas. Yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny one, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm always fascinated by the promises that different phases of uh, spiritual discourse make. I'm only 42, but I started out in this stuff very, very young, and I've seen a lot of stuff over the years. And it's interesting in terms of an edge. One of the practices I always have is to avoid becoming the reactive subject that we spoke about before. And one of the consequences of that is that I, I find myself incredibly bemused by the attempts of a variety mm -hmm. of spiritual and religious traditions to paint themselves within the vernacular or, you know, the sort of hot topics of our present moment. Uh, it's perfectly understandable, of course. Uh -huh. It's nefarious and it's also naive and it's many, many things all at once. But it's also highly amusing. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but one of the signs of a lack of critical engagement, in my view, is, is a loss of sense of humor. Mm. And I think it's important, in spite of many of the negative aspects of neoliberalism and the co-option of mindfulness, to 
find a bit of humor in all of this because it, it accompanies more fully, I think, the creative urge that is being suppressed, as you mentioned before, by the neoliberal constraints. Yeah, I, th- I think we need we need these more subversive or come at it at, at a right angle instead of, you know, frontal attack. And this this fits in nicely to another question I wanted to ask you, which is the fact that mindfulness often ends up in this accommodation orientation. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about mm-hmm. that. When you talk about accommodation, what are you talking about? Are you, are you saying simply that mindfulness ends up sort of accommodating the neoliberal vision of what the person should be? Or is it something else? That's part of it. I think accommodation could work in different levels, but I think that's certainly one level. But it's accommodating to the context and repurposing the practice to further the interest uh, of that particular entity. Uh, In this case, let's say a corporation. Right. So mindfulness becomes uh, refashioned into an instrumental technique to achieve a particular purpose. Uh, I need to be more focused. I need to to de-stress, things like that. So by doing that, again, the social, the political, the economic spheres kind of disappear from view. And so there's very little challenge going on to the institutionalized forces that are, in many respects, uh, the sources of of anxiety and stress and depression and everything else. I think what's, uh, you know, Richard King and uh, Carrot and King wrote that that amazing book, uh, Selling Spirituality to Corporate Takeover of Religion. That's where I first came across that term was from, from their work. You know, I think you're right. You know, it, it is uh, uh, amusing how mindfulness is presented and represented in, in contemporary life. One of the developments, and this, this comes from my colleague Richard King, actually, he, he likes to refer to it as the mindfulness-only school. And I thought that was an interesting way of thinking about it. So the mindfulness-only school, uh, again, it, it, it ties into mindfulness because there's kind of a psychologization of, of mindfulness, yep. right? And, you know, these key, these key tenets, you know, bear attention, non-judgment, all those sorts of things. And so there you, you also have the issue of that these are ethically neutral techniques. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but that's, there's no such thing as an ethically neutral technique. Of course, yeah. But when you say that we have the universal essence... And the truth, right? Yeah. And true. We know, we Westerners, especially with science behind us, we have the real mindfulness. We have the, the authentic mindfulness. And, you know, I think a, a lot of uh, people have misinterpreted the mindfulness hmm. critique in some ways because they think that I'm suggesting a way of asserting Buddhist ownership over right. mindfulness. That's not at all what this critique was intended to convey. So I think this this idea of the mindfulness only school, we if we take a closer look at, you know, suspending judgment, radical ac- acceptance, all those kinds of bare attention, uh, it, we have to be careful on how those those practices are being co-opted again for accommodated to further, I guess you could say the the machines that are producing so- social suffering. Yeah. Yeah, I can get on board with that. There's a there's another word that I'd like to bring into the conversation, which is interdependence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, again, an often neglected concept within contemporary Western Buddhist practice. 
I don't know if it's a topic that's brought into mindfulness practice. I've no idea. But it seems to me that that, that one of the features of a lot of uh, Western spirituality and Western Buddhist practice is related to partly what, what you said at the beginning of our conversation today, which is an emphasis of the positive, right? Right. You know, nurture positive emotions, nurture positive experiences because they bolster the, the sense of the self or the marketization of the self within this competitive market of selves which are competing against each other. I've long been amused, to use that term again, or fascinated by the fact that so much of Western Buddhist discourse is rooted in the idea when it discusses interdependence of a sort of universal level of connectedness. I think one of the cop-outs that a lot of Western Buddhists make is that they refuse to sort of see instead the interdependence that they have with somebody no, I don't, I'm not going to use that word, actually. Let's not name he who shall not be named. Yeah. Let's say, you know, a Margaret Thatcher or a Ronald Reagan, or let's say the, the you know, the neoliberal order. Um, I think we often fail to conceptualize the degree to which our own sense of self within Buddhist practice, which may not be mindfulness, is utterly independent with the neoliberal order. One of the things I've been pushing for on my blog, for example, is trying to throw out a sort of wake-up a sort of metaphorical slap uh, to say, actually, you know what, you're interdependent with everything that's dysfunctional in the societies that we live in. I think that could be an interesting way to view the, the, the very common disengagement from not just Buddhists, but spiritual people in, in general in the West from, you know, political challenges, economic challenges. We need more people to sort of dive into the challenge of engaging with that lack or that paucity of imaginative engagement with the challenges of our time. Mindfulness, in a sense, or Buddhist practices, both of them could theoretically be very useful aids in encouraging and enabling people to engage in that type of practice. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I think that's a, a creative way of opening up the potential for a different kind of yeah. discourse by saying, okay, interdependence is one of the central tenets of, of Buddhism, so why don't we look at that? Why don't we take a closer look at that, not just on an abstract level, and, and come to terms, you know, start to have a dialogue about how are these forces, how are these cultural forces uh, having an impact on our practice, having an impact on our daily lives. I think you're making a good point to bring in, uh, or to bring into view again, the social and the collective spheres, which are often uh, obscured or, or ignored when you're looking particularly uh, in a privatized kind of spirituality. Those, those sorts of conversations, you know, don't necessarily happen very often. I think another way of thinking about this, another, another way of thinking about this is that we lack, you know, what C. Wright Mills, sociologist, called sociological imagination. We lack we lack that. And what he, what he meant by, by that was we need to connect our personal troubles with public issues. Right. And that requires sociological imagination. Hmm. You know, I think it's very important. You brought up Thatcher. <laughs> and, you know, one of, one of her, uh, I can't remember exactly what her phrase was, but he, it was something like economics is the method, but the object is to change the soul. Wow. That's dark. And so, you know, in many ways, I see McMindfulness or mindfulness in its current form as chicken soup for the neoliberal soul. Okay. Yeah. 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 That works. Yeah. The therapeutic language of self, the self-help culture, all of that, you know, flavors and colors, the way that we make sense of, of, of these practices. 
and just the whole promotion of a profoundly individualistic view of the world that can be a byproduct of mindfulness-only types of practices. I think we have a vast opportunity to, you could say, uh, extend the discourse, open the discourse in ways that are not oppositional, as you said, but creative, that almost like judo, like you said, we can use uh, interdependence as a way to enfold these kinds of questions. Yeah. Okay, this is utopian thinking, so I'll be explicit about that. I'd like to see some retreats in which perhaps people literally spend days meditating on their interdependence with some of the most dysfunctional aspects <laughs> of our current state of being and, and, and shared societal, you know, lot. Right, right. That's a challenge. I don't, I don't know if any Buddhist teachers out there would be willing to take up that one, but that's something. I, I, yeah, go on. I had an interesting uh, kind of utopian thought come to me the, a few days ago. Right. And it has to do with interdependence, I think, in some way. So mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, let's, you know, some of the traditional practices involving compassion, you know, first you, you uh, extend it to your relatives, people close to you, then you extend it to strangers who, or, you know, who you really don't know, and then to your enemies. And so what came to me that day was, uh, what about Trump, you know, yeah. uh, what, you know, why aren't we uh, having a national day of compassion for Trump, which would be kind of weird, but... <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure he deserves it, to be honest. <laughs> you well, Buddhist leaders could get behind they, that. They probably could, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, one of the uh, one of the terms that mindfulness-only school uses that was kind of borrowed from the Theravada is seeing things as they are. Right, right? yeah, absolutely. You just have to see things as they are. But what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, and how easy is it to do so? And what if things are miserable and unjust? Mm. Uh, instead, it seems like the social sphere is sort of portrayed as the enemy in a way. I mean, that's a bit of an extreme way of putting it. But it's, I think it's accurate. That's very good. Yeah. I, I think that if we look at mindfulness, uh, the idea is... is you know, the pathology of stress, everything is pathologized, depoliticized, the centrality of the self in the discourse. You know, all those kinds of notions, I think, really need to be put to the test and brought into more critical dialogue. As you said, that would be a great retreat be a very good to one. entertain. Yeah, I'd be real excited about they that. They need disruption. Yeah. yeah, disruption. It's interesting. I think the point you've just made is actually very important, which is this idea that the social is the enemy. In a sense, that's illustrative of how indoctrinated an individual has become into the neoliberal order. Right. Because right. if you believe that, then of course, you know, the necessary preservation and exaltation of the self is always at the cost or the sacrifice of the collective, right? And the participation in that. Yeah. I think that's very interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, sorry, just to say one other point about this Trump idea. You know why I'm resistant to that? I think it's because it's one of those sort of tropes that comes out in Western Buddhist circles. You know, no, I agree who do we that, hate yeah. the most? Well, it's, you know, it's Ronald Reagan, it's George Bush Jr., or it's Trump. It's kind of lazy. That's, I, I think that's my view. I think if I was doing a retreat, I would say, I want you to understand how you are also part of Trump and how the drives, mm -hmm. in particular, the drives that push someone like Trump to be what he is, to have the opportunities he's have, they also exist within you. Be understanding towards how that exists in all of us. And until we understand it, until we come to terms with it, and until we release that imaginative potential that you talked about at the beginning of our conversation, 
We need to be invested in that kind of project. Otherwise, I think too often Buddhist practice of having compassion for others becomes a sort of pity game or like an, oh, you know, a superiority yeah. game. Like sloppy sympathy. Yeah, yeah, sloppy sympathy. Very nice. So it's like he's over there. I'm superior. I think it's actually just another form of of neoliberal assertion of the self over others. It's just done right in a value of goodness. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's really a good way of, of uh, uh, articulating it. Yeah. But, you know, if you look at the discourse, of, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, I think he, he has a talking point that he uses a lot. We suffer from being an ADD society, hmm. a 20, you know, to 24-7 society. And, it was, and the solution, of course, is then to, to practice individualized mindfulness. <laughs> of course. What that implies is, again, it goes back to, it seems like it's implying that, that we can be free of the corrupting influence of social conditioning, but that in a way it's pitting the individual against, against society in some ways. It's like, it's some sort of like idealistic vision of the natural man, you know, uh, pure consciousness. Right. I think we need to critique this whole idea of that, you know, it's up to us to engage in self-care and, and uh, the whole idea of, of becoming these uh, fully autonomous individuals. And Yeah, you know what it makes me think of? That all ideologies, in a sense, they pursue, they pursue an, in, an implicit shared goal, which is purity. Purity, in a sense, ends up being the sort of the actualization of the full potential of the ideological force or the imagination that it has of what the individual should ultimately be. I think there's no surprise from that kind of perspective that mindfulness is a very simplistic view of what practice should and could be. It's a very simplistic practice space for engaging with consciousness and the notion or the experience of selfhood. Thinking out loud now, uh, considering some of the topics we've touched on, that this sort of the third way, you know, the opposition to 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 becoming neoliberal or becoming an op in in opposition to neoliberalism would be to embrace what neoliberalism leaves out or what it excludes from its ideal of what a person should be, its its purified image of the of the individual, and that is, you know, a sense of the capacity to engage a word you use, which is critical thought or critical engagement. The other side, which is something our species has always struggled with, is complexity. Um, I kind of feel that if we look at people who think originally about things, they're generally people that have grasped both through intuition, but through critical engagement, a sense of the complexity of issues that are contemporarily being painted as simplistic. And I, I think you probably agree that mindfulness paints a rather simplistic ideal of what practice is and what it, what it provides for individuals. Um, again, bridging the gap, which I said I might do before with Buddhism and contemporary Western Buddhism, one of the things that's often lacking because it's still led very much by Americans and the anti-intellectual tradition yeah. is the willingness to consider complexity as actually being the ground for practice. Mm. And I don't mean complexity in terms of, you know, advanced Tibetan Vajra Yoga practice right. uh, with all of its, you know, ideals of what we should and shouldn't do and so forth. But I mean that you know, again, if, if I go back to the theme that I've been bringing to our conversation today, it's like, what's the given? What's the assumption? What's obvious? Well, what would it be instead to try approaching that creatively and encompass all of those things, but also encompass the things that people are unwilling to say 
I'm willing to look at and I'm willing to recognize. I like the term complexity because it, by nature, uh, you're, you're not uh, reducing, you're not in a reductionist mode and oversimplification mode. I, I think we're up against, as you said, uh, the anti-intellectual ferment in, in American culture, the desire for a quick fix, uh, those sorts of obstacles. And simplicity. If you look at all the stresses that people experience, I think they're, they're due in part to the burden of complexity that modern life places on them. Multiple roles, multiple burdens, as well as work, which is the most obvious one. I see people struggling with the demands of, of modern life. And it's weird. It's like, it's like this, this coexistence of modernity, postmodern thought, modern thought and pre-modern thought and globalization. It's as if people were, in a sense, sort of unconsciously picking up on all this, but incapable of dealing with it. And so therefore, the, the only way they see out of it is, is respite, is taking a break from the neoliberal globalized, intense push to reassert ourselves and be survivors and to be on view and, and to manage, right? To, yeah. to appear to be managing in all of this chaos and this crap that we're supposed to be tolerating. Right. I kind of feel like we're coming to a head and, and different people from different traditions and disciplines are saying this, whether they're, you know, environmentalists, politicians, economists. It's coming from all angles. I think the only way forward in a sense would be a capacity for individuals to embrace complexity and, you know, just to be a little bit daring in our conversation today, perhaps dissolve the self within complexity. Part of the game is to really understand just how much, I mean, how is neoliberalism transmitted? I mean, language plays a, a major role in the transmission of ideology or culture. And I don't think Buddhists pay a, a, enough attention to the role of language in, in shaping our lives, because language is often seen as the enemy in, in Buddhist circles. Right. You know, we, we have to move to this non-conceptual, some sort of pure state of pure consciousness, <laughs> right, yeah. which, is, which is completely uh, free of any kind of ties to history or culture or politics. Or so I think one of the challenges in Western Buddhism is to see language uh, as something that uh, is highly conditioning, but at the same time, we can't, we can't live without it, and we need to use it in, in, uh, as a tool, as a, as a way of, as a form of resistance. And, and the only way we could do that is by having dialogues and discourse that starts to entertain a lot of the ideas that we brought up today. Yeah. This tendency to, to see language as either the enemy or even, even thoughts. You know, a lot of uh, mindfulness thinks that we should meditation is a way of pacifying our thinking. Mm. I think that's connected to a point you made before, right at the beginning, which is that we're, we're still in very much early days in, in terms of the transmission and understanding of the complexity and richness of what Buddhism presents in terms not only of being, in a sense, an independent history of thought and practice which evolved without the West, but that then must come into relationship with Western thought and practice and all of the, bag the baggage we, we, we bring with us. I think right. you know, it heartens me to hear you, you say that the questions you and I are discussing today in our conversation should be the stuff that contemporary Buddhists well, I would say long-term Buddhists should be engaging with. I would use that word that I used with you at the beginning, which that's where the edge is for us as a collective. And I think 
that in a sense is the antidote to the neoliberal, um, you know, sort of pollution or dissemination across not just mindfulness, but Buddhist discourse as a whole, and the ideal of selfhood and the personhood within Buddhist practice. It's like, you know, we don't want to go backwards. I think that's one of the critiques that's, that's been interesting in much political discourse at the moment, which is the recognition that a retreat to collectivism is itself problematic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's going backwards. We need to go forwards. Going forwards would be an, an encompassing of complexity, which means that the individual needs to be preserved to some sense because it, it does seem to be the best model we've come up with politically and socially for ensuring that despots and kings and dictators don't take the reins and we don't all descend into collective nationalism and, mm -hmm. you know, tribalism. But we've seen as well, neoliberalism is sort of the last breath, perhaps, of this, this phase of history. The pushing for hyper-individualism produces all of the dysfunction that we've described today. Um, but going backwards is not an option. We need a movement forwards. And I think, you know, one of the failings of Western Buddhism has been to recognize that liberation, freedom, or relevance as a religious tradition can only be found in an embracing of complexity and not retreat to tradition, not retreat to the um, romantic relationship with Asian traditions that we've seen all over the place, and certainly not in the development of this highly simplistic supposedly secular but highly ideological practice of mindfulness. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the point I made earlier that we have to be creative and subversive in how we recontextualize these practices so that they're not just aiding and embedding of the status quo. So I think you're absolutely right. I'll make a point that there is a congressman, Tim Ryan, I don't know if you've uh, heard of him, a U.S. congressman, I have, yes. Yeah. And he wrote a book called The Mindful Nation, which I haven't read yet, but I plan to. But I've, I've seen a few statements by him. And I think that he's, in a way, parroting the problem because there's kind of a politics of, of depth mm -hmm. that he's saying, if we just go a little deeper, you know, if we just become more mindful, then society will <laughs> uh, heal and take care of itself. And this goes back to that notion of pure consciousness. Mm. What we don't realize is that that is a political view, too. Good. It's a political view. And it, it, like you said, we shouldn't just flip flop to become collectivist nationalist. But on the other hand, we shouldn't see the collective as a corrupting influence. No. Yeah, that's a good point. The other thing I think we need to reclaim or uh, reinvigorate is that in some Buddhist countries and some Buddhist schools, there was sort of at least a renunciatory critique, right, mm -hmm. of social and economic life in those societies. Yeah. And when uh, the beat movement and, and the early interest in Zen, all you know, the hippies, hippies were early adopters, right, if you want to put it that way, <laughs> of uh, Zen Buddhism and other Tibetan Buddhism. There was a spirit of anti-materialism back then. Right, uh, yeah. Uh, Anti-establishment. But somehow it's morphed and mindfulness is morphed into more as, uh, uh, or it's touted as a way to, to thrive in, this, in the neoliberal order. Mm -hmm. And so I feel we need to take that, take back aspects that have sort of been either forgotten or mm -hmm. stifled or... So what would those aspects be? Can you name a couple? I think one way of reframing it is what if we thought of mindfulness in terms, we could say social mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just come up with new ways of, of putting together different ways of teaching mindfulness that 
bring back in the social, bring back in the, mm-hmm. uh, the political spheres. So I, you know, this is something I'm working on. I'm hoping to move in that direction very, very soon. Good. Yeah. Another thought that comes to mind in listening to you is that I can't help but think that the hippies, in a sense, were also reactive subjects, which perhaps explains why, you know, that whole movement failed eventually. Mm-hmm. There are various ways of analyzing it, critiquing it, and so forth. This is a thing I've I've written about quite a bit at my blog, which is that one of the things that, that Western Buddhists often fail to discuss is the implicit role of Christianity and Judaism in terms of a, like a metaphysical view of the universe and the self within it, how those form the basis for much Western Buddhism. And the consequences of those I still feel have been poorly addressed. So it's not just neoliberalism, it's the fact that Buddhism, in a sense, in, in Western discourse, Western Dharma halls, retreats, and the individual meditating is still encumbered by the baggage of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Implicit in that is the discourse you just produced, which is this idea of purity, or this idea of absolutes, or of beginnings and endings and freedom. S- and suppression of the passions. Absolutely. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but I... Yeah, uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with David McMahon's work on this. Sure, yeah. Um, But his idea of social imaginaries and uh, how uh, American transcendentalism, for example, is infused in much of John Kabat-Zinn's works. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And perennialism is another one that I think— Oh, that's a big one. Yes. It connects to this idea of universalizing— yeah, which needs critiquing, right? Which needs critiquing. I mean, I don't like being absolutist, but I'm going to indulge in it just to, just for a moment. Um, I think, you know, the, on, the only solution to dealing with many of these defects that we're describing is a re-engagement with intellectual inquiry and understanding. I mean, I, I'm, I'm amazed by this. Of course, Glenn Wallace wrote about this. Tom Pepper did too. But I think many people, many Western Buddhists intuitively understood this, that it's weird. It's weird that Western Buddhism as a whole, not just mindfulness, has sort of jettisoned this incredibly rich, textured history of Buddhism and its engagement with intellect, contemplation, reading, reflection, discourse, argumentation. Yeah, how did we end up with this sort of, I don't know, this... This Western space of Dharma, which, as you said before, is obsessed with the simplicity of, of non-symbolic, right. non-discursive selfhood. I think part of that is because experience is overrated. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because people yeah. want, well, you know, I want to I have direct experience. I want to... Because that's authentic and that's real, right? Right. And yeah. so there's, there's that, there's that uh, pull away yeah, but you're absolutely right. That's, that's what's always kind of I've, I've I've admired about the Buddhist lineages and traditions, and just just how much, how many sutras and commentaries and and traditions for debate and argument. But I think that's what made Buddhism a intergenerational uh, living uh, stream of inquiry, mm-hmm. and and uh, and if I can interrupt. Creative yeah. engagement with the, the meaningful challenges and issues of, of the time. I think that's why a critique of Western Buddhism is so essential, because in a sense, at least so far, it's been copping out of, I would say, a significant and meaningful engagement with the major issues of our time. 
which is to say that the figures that are doing that are too peripheral to render Buddhism a meaningful force for critical engagement with the, the actuality of the challenges we're currently facing. But that said, I think the potential is there. I think that's why perhaps yourself, I don't know, I don't want to be too presumptuous, but certainly I and, you know, Glenn, we're, we're still engaged with Buddhism because the potential is there to bring something that's not pre-existing within the Western tradition to a critique and a meaningful engagement with all of these challenges we've discussed today. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, time is ticking. Let's talk about freedom for a moment. You know, it's a word I love. Hmm. And it's a word that's fundamental to neoliberalism because they profess a certain type of freedom. What do you think would be a definition of freedom that might supersede the neoliberal ideal of the individual and its narcissistic tendencies? Hmm. Within a Buddhist discourse, uh, we can still rely on Buddhist language, if you like. Oh, okay. Um, well, first, it's not just freedom of an unencumbered individual. That notion of freedom really comes out of therapeutic ethos or therapeutic culture. So I think that I think freedom, in, in, in some ways, is... I'm struggling. <laughs> I'm struggling with that. Such a big... Question. It's not an easy question I threw at you. Apologies. Yeah. That's okay. I, that's 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 good. I think it's it's uh, well freedom from conditioning. Sure, I can go with that. I know I'm not offering anything sexy right now, but um, <laughs> can I can I say something then? Sure. Yeah, this wasn't deliberate, <laughs> and I'm certainly not trying to sell anything. I have this increasingly ecological view of personhood. Mm -hmm. It goes together with this notion of complexity. Um, what I'm interested in part in analyzing Buddhist discourse is what they leave out. And that relates to the simplicity and the purity ideals that we've mentioned so far. My view is that I, I guess it's slightly more towards the sort of tantric ideal, which is more willing to embrace or at least engage with the rougher edges of our humanity, mm -hmm. that would be the Buddhist connection. It's more towards, I guess, a shamanic perspective, though, which is that freedom, in a sense, would need to be the capacity to embrace the totality of our experience as humans, the multi-layers of oh, I think the that's ecology beautiful. of our shared being. That is beautiful, and, yeah. Right, and, and find the capacity to be creative and spontaneous and untrapped within that. I think that's great. And so it's kind of a, this, how do we discover this, this unbounded freedom, right? It's not just freedom from external restraints. But as you said, it's, it's almost like intrinsic freedom of, of the meaning and value of being human. And that it becomes a lived reality, then other freedoms can kind of flow from that. But it is, I think, you're, I think this is the right direction. And I've had a lot of interest in creativity over the years, too. Mm. Is, is is to really explore the creative dimensions of our own being with really incisive and critical philosophical inquiry, coupling that with experiments. I don't even want to use the word meditation or mm -hmm. but but experiments in ways of knowing or ways of seeing, ways of embodiment even that again tap into that sense of that there is no private world, there is no separation between our uh, private world and the world of the ecology or world of others. Um, so I, I'm, I'm totally in, uh, 
in resonance with what you're saying. Well, that's a nice place to finish up. I'm being harassed by my wife and son to be quiet because my, you know, it's late here and my son has to sleep. Yeah, it's quite late there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, (laughs) let me have a look. It is. Yeah. It's almost 11 o'clock at night. So Ron, this has been a good conversation. I'm really pleased we finally managed to make it happen. Yes. It's been good to talk to you and, um, you know, explore these topics together. Sounds great. I I love your podcast. I've been reading a lot on your blog too. Oh, great. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, look, you know, um, let's do it again at some point. I think there's more ground we could potentially explore together in our conversation. And uh, thanks again for coming on. I wish you the best for the rest of your retreat. You too. Thank you. And uh, you folks uh, keep in tune with the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Don't forget, there's an article on neoliberalism and Buddhism at posttraditionalbuddhism.com. And we'll, uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Matilda. Matilda People don't think you're up to much Just because you're small Matilda Matilda But I know if height was measured in bolts You'd be a hundred feet Matilda, Matilda. So when you gonna go and show them how it's done? Cause there ain't no doubt you know how to have fun. Matilda. Matilda, I know you can, I've seen it before, Matilda, Matilda, when you let your hair down, it'll reach right down to the Going, she'll keep going till the dawn if you'll let her.